is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, the arts, history, sometimes even public policy. But for the most part, it's just stories you care about, stories we care about. And this next one, well, we're going to let Lauren tell the story herself. Lauren Masaros joins us now. She's a nurse at the University of San Francisco Medical Center and also, well, late in life, discovered a love for horses. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And, you know, for anybody who's watching fires raging around the country, and particularly in California, and seeing the deadly images, this story is about Lauren's close encounter with some serious fires up near her home. And, uh, Lauren, talk about the fires and how quickly they came upon you uh, up there in Santa Rosa. Well, unfortunately, no one knew how fast these fires would spread. They were coming down the mountains behind our homes at about 70 miles an hour. So most of the people in my neighborhood just woke up by neighbors banging on their doors, and many houses were already on fire. It came very close very quickly. And unlike hurricanes, tornadoes, where people at least have some advance warning, you know, it's hard to get real advance warning when these things suddenly jolt up at you. So you really didn't know it was coming, did you, Lauren? We did not. Um, When I went to bed at 10 o'clock, I was able to, I smelled something burning, but sometimes people light their fireplaces. And we do have lots of fires up here, and but they never come down the hills. I mean, it literally crossed six lanes of traffic because it was moving so fast with the wind, which no one expected to happen. Now, a little digression here, you you know, you developed a love of horses a little bit late in life. You're a Jersey girl who migrated out to California. Talk about this, this passion. When did it happen? And talk about your home. Describe your home, your setting. And I think it'd interest some folks who are from the Northeast. I originally grew up in New Jersey. The idea of having a horse on my property or our lush quarter acre would have been real, real odd to our neighbors at the minimum. Yeah. Well, I was first I was living in San Francisco and after about two really horrible rainy winters, I was getting very depressed in the rain and the fog. And a friend that I work with has had horses her whole life and said, you know, you need to do something, get yourself out. And I thought, well, horses work for her. So I started going to local stables. And after I decided how much I loved horses, I wanted to move and have a piece of property where I could have my horses with me which is why I ended up in Santa Rosa at about 60, I'm about 60 miles north of San Francisco. Oh, so you've moved a little bit out, but this is the life you wanted and the peace you were looking for and the connection to the, to, to the earth, I guess, in the end, Lauren, to be connected more to, to, to life on the ground. And so this, this life on the ground gets invaded by fires. And what's the first thought you think of in your property? Who, who, are, the, who are the people you're thinking of the most? And, and, and talk in particular about the three horses you have. Well, when my neighbor woke me up, that was my first thought. What do I do? And it was such a catastrophe. It was not like you could call 911. And that first night, we were unable to get out because the neighborhood was literally burning. And the street, there was one street to get out of my house. And that street was on fire. And even if I had had a horse trailer on the property... The roads were clogged with abandoned cars because people trying to escape their cars were catching on fire and they were running on foot. So we waited out that night and just moved the horses as far away from the fire as we could down to my neighbor's house and just hoped for the best during the night. And I got the horses out the next morning. And talk about how you got one of them out, because a a picture prompted this uh, 
this call, Lauren, though we want to talk to you about more serious things, but it's a it's quite a picture. It's it's your pony in the back of a Honda Accord and it's not a hatchback, Lauren. It's a, actually a sedan. <laughs> so talk about yeah. talk about how you managed to lure a pony and why you needed to choose the the car as the best mode of transportation for a pony, which by the way we're not suggesting in normal day to day life. No, well my friend Carol who um has the uh, certificate where she can go into devastated areas, so she was able to get to me. Um, there were several, there was many people that were calling me with big trailers willing to evacuate, and I asked them to please go to the ranches where there were more horses to evacuate that were literally still on fire that morning. So as my friend Carol was coming, I was thinking, well, she's got a two-horse trailer and I have three horses. So she's been a horsewoman since, I think, before she could walk. So she got her trailer here, and the first thing we did was get the two mares into her trailer, and they went in so beautifully and so easily. And after we had them in and closed the trailer doors, we just looked at the mini horse and looked at the Honda and said, well, we have to get them out of here. So we just opened up the back doors of the Honda and held a carrot, and he walked right in. And lucky you, the, the horse is saved. All three are fine. And, you know, we can't go uh, much longer without mentioning that not, as, not all horses and animals fared as well. And all kinds of people, Lauren, risked their lives to save not just fellow human beings, but have risked their lives to save their animals, too. And we've seen the images, and, and we'll continue to as we see fires rage in the coming year and years. Talk about that as well and those images. Well, it's just to see the true human spirit come out at times where people, you know, literally were rushing back into the barns. I have friends who had their their horses stabled behind us, and they were able to get, if they hadn't gotten to the the fire in time, the horses were in the stables, and the stables had burnt down, and they kind of rode through the fire with the firemen and got those horses out of the stables into the pastures, and they saved at least 30 horses. Unfortunately, some horses did die. But these people risk their lives, and as we're seeing in Southern California, people running into burning stables to get their horses out. Not only horses, their dogs and their cats and anything, you know, any other living thing that was there for them to save. And we've been listening to Lauren Massaros, and what a good story. And that's what we do here every day on Our American Stories. Tell the good, talk about the cooperation that happens out there in America each and every day, and just the humanity Uh, displayed here in danger, in harm's way. People came out not just to save fellow human beings, but four-legged friends as well. And that picture of a pony in a Honda, well, that says it all. And Lauren Massaros' story, so many people suffering from natural disasters in this country, but also experiencing the humanity of this country, the soul of America. Lauren Massaros' story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Story, and it's time for our Rule of Law series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this story, one that may not seem like a story on the Rule of Law, but is. Here's Dave Grohl, the frontman of the Foo Fighters, and earlier, a pretty unknown drummer who joined a pretty unknown band called Nirvana. When I joined the band, they had this demo that sounded amazing. It sounded huge, and it sounded different than the things that they had done before. And everyone talked about Butch, 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 Butch. Butch Vig, who owns Smart Studios, a recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin, where Nirvana recorded the demo for their breakout album, Nevermind. Bands like Death Cab for Cutie and Beck did some stuff here. Freedy Johnson did a lot of stuff here. And a lot. Uh, the list is pretty extensive. If you go online, you'll see this, this huge list. You're listening to a guy named Phil Parhamovich, and he's saying here because he and I were literally there talking inside the now defunct Smart Studios. And that list he mentioned of who's also recorded here. Includes the Smashing Pumpkins, their debut and breakout album Gish was done here, as was Fall Out Boys, and Soul Asylum, Everclear, Jimmy World, and Tegan and Sarah are also on that list. But when Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana recorded here, I think it was pretty basic. It was just a pretty basic building. I think it was built in the late 1800s as a Jewish grocery store at the time. When Butch Vig first came in here, I imagine it was kind of still, you know, in some state like that. So this was the room where, you know, Kurt Cobain and all those guys did their thing. Billy Corgan with the Smashing Pumpkins, and that's where Butch would have sat and recorded them. They were doing a lot here, starting to kind of create that grunge sound, and Butch was really, really that guy. A guy from Madison, Wisconsin, of all places, shaping the 90s iconic grunge sound. It's most identified with a city 1,925 miles away, Seattle. How did that happen? Somehow, you know, I think when you're in the scene, you just pay attention to the albums that you like, how they sound. They probably liked what was coming out of the studio and sought him out. Conveniently, Butch Vig didn't have to seek out a studio when he recorded himself. Well, he'd started Garbage here. He started his band Garbage, and they were doing really well. They moved to L.A., like all big bands do. Now, strangely enough, this story isn't about Butch Vig or about any of these famous people who were in this totally nondescript studio that doesn't have a single solitary landmark or sign marking all the fame that was created here. And not a zip. And why are we talking to this Phil guy, by the way? He's not famous. At least not yet. So, uh, I the weird thing is, I had seen it. I, I'd known about it. The studio's legendary. I knew about Smart Studios. And I kept like trying to find it. And I had been passing it on the road a lot without knowing what it was. Because it's this ugly, derelict building. You know, it's like the windows are all bricked up. It looks like 
this crack house or abandoned place, you know. And I didn't really realize it was that. And finally, someone, I think, pointed out, no, that was Smart Studios right there. I was like, huh. And so the next time I was driving by, I had had money saved up. I had around well, 100 grand or so. And I was trying to find a house. And Phil, who's a musician, thought to himself, why not live in a famous recording studio? And he was going to until the police pulled him over for a seatbelt violation. So he threw me in the back of the car, and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart and found my cash and uh, got extremely excited. At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, you know, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? what's going on here. This is the story of Phil Parhamovich. Born and raised in the Cleveland area. Played football, really got into art and music. Started recording music. Kind of making fake albums with my brothers. Making the album art. And we'd get up on the bed and do these fake concerts and stuff. And uh, really was just a sports kid, an art kid, and somehow was like, had the perfect combination of both. It was a mix that some people couldn't quite understand. I started going to school for, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to do like Marvel comics. When I was a kid, I had established maybe 200 superheroes. And we would laminate them with scotch tape and cut them out and play with them. It was our toys, you know. Did you not have much money growing up? Yeah, we were poor. My parents were divorced after about sixth grade. My mom wasn't home very much. She worked and then she went out after work and uh, I raised my sister pretty much alone. And whatever was in the fridge, we had, I think we had a box of frozen pork chops that we ate off of for a while and, and uh, it was pretty tough. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. A childhood that's definitely not ideal, but also one that can definitely inspire creativity like Phil's. You almost have to to get by. Creatively finding ways to feed yourself and have something to play with. So I was going to art school in Nova Scotia at the time and my father became an accountant and he was doing the taxes for the video director of the Browns and they needed an intern. They just hired Bill Belichick, the Patriots coach and they needed an intern because they were going to do their own TV show in-house. They wanted somebody with some art school experience or at least some experience with doing art and graphics. Each segment had a graphic going into it and they wanted somebody who would kind of have an idea of how to do that and so they hired me to kind of take the TV show responsibility and they hired another guy to do more of the football stuff and it turned out I ended up knowing more about football than anybody in the department. So I did all the football stuff, shooting practices and editing the tape. And, but I also did the TV show and everything from interviewing the players to building the sets to editing the segments together and all that. So I was totally into it. It was a cool job, except it was the schedule was such a grind. I mean, there was one day a week we didn't sleep. 
we just worked right into the next day and Saturdays and Sundays we worked. So from just before the start of training camp until past the end of the season, a couple of weeks, there was no days off. And one day a week you didn't sleep. The other days a week we'd work until about one in the morning, get up and start working again about seven. So it was a grind. I worked there for two years. And after those two years, I, uh, I had had enough and I, I was really getting more into music. And at that point, I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I had gone to school with a dude who was in a band who was becoming very successful in Minneapolis. And that scene was really blowing up there, Soul Asylum and The Replacements and Husker Du. And my friend's band, The Hangups, was right in the midst of all that stuff and knew all those guys and was playing shows with them. So I quit and moved out to Minneapolis and started pursuing music and then I would work in the spring in NFL Europe so I'd spend about four or five months in NFL Europe making money and then coming back and launching into my music stuff. Phil also searched for his dream country house. He'd buy one, fix it up, conclude that it wasn't his dream house and sell it. This is how he accidentally saved up the $100,000 cash that he didn't keep in a bank but with him and why the police were able to take it from him. I'm not really that into our system of how we do things. I didn't see why a CEO should be making a bunch of money off my money when I could hide it just as well. And when we come back, we continue with our Rule of Law series and what happened to those hard-earned dollars in Phil Parhamovich's car The cops were interested in that $92,000, and they thought they had every right to take it. And when we come back, more of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. Visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org, and make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send you the top five stories of the week. We can either listen to them or read the transcription. ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, as you well know. And this one, well, this is just as good as it gets. We return to musician Phil Parhamovich's story of trying to buy the legendary Smart Studios where Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, and so many others recorded, and how Phil's preference to keep his cash with him was treated like a crime. Worked out a contract, sent it to him. He signed it, okayed it. I gave him the earnest money. And I think in a couple days, two or three days, I left on tour. Here I had all of my money in this box, and it was a lot of money. And the apartment I lived in, they had the boiler room for the whole building in my unit, and they would just allow themselves in. 
whenever they wanted. Just like no knocking, no ringing the doorbell, just like, hello, we're here to service the boiler. So I'm getting ready to leave on this little tour. I'm like, well, here I've got this studio under contract. So like, I'm super excited about that. My life is just like, woo. And all of my money is not really being able to be hid very well. And I'm like, well, I could bring it in speaker. I'll have it with me on stage. So I leave on this trip and I'm starting out in this blizzard, this horrible blizzard. And I was going like 20 miles an hour for six hours through Iowa. Like I was, wasn't moving at all. And I finally stopped and I stopped on the, the side of the road by a hotel, slept there for a few hours and I got back up in the morning. I missed my first show in Denver because I just couldn't make it that far. And I was driving on to the next show in Wyoming and I passed this police officer on the right-hand side of the road. I could tell he just stopped someone and said canine unit on his car. And uh, I know a little bit how they are. Like they like to search people whenever they can, but I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going under the speed limit in the slow lane behind a truck at that time. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom really bad. So I was like really looking for that next stop. There were high winds on the highway. I'm driving along and that cop races up alongside of me and is just studying me for a long time. At that point, I kind of felt like prey. Finally, pulls me over. He comes up and immediately says, could you please come back into my car? I'd like to ask you a bunch of questions. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I don't see, see why not. You know, he said he was stopping me for, for my seatbelt. He saw I didn't have my seatbelt on. I was like, well, this is kind of strange. I just don't, don't have my seatbelt on. This guy is obviously super aggressive. We go back into his car. So he starts asking me all these questions. Well, where are you from? Where are you going? You know, what, what are you doing? What band is it? Where are you playing? So I'm just answering these questions. You know, they're simple questions. And to each question, he's opposing them. He's like, well, that, that can't be true. How can that be true? And he's like manipulating every question into this kind of doubting thing, you know? And after a while, it started to get just confusing and kind of strange. And it just seemed like a real head game was happening. So finally he says, well, I want to search your car with, with my dog. And uh, I was like, well, that's fine. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I don't, I don't do drugs. And so I was like, that, that's fine. So he brings his dog up, and he had three tennis balls in his car door. He grabs one of them, puts it in his hand under his sleeve. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And he walks up to my car, and this dog is, is just a dumb dog. It's, it's really, like, not interested in anything. And uh, the dog is just kind of sitting there staring at this officer. And finally, the officer is, like, trying to get the dog interested in the car. He's doing whatever he can to get the dog interested. The dog has no interest in it. Taking the dog, bringing his nose right up against the door and stuff, the dog's not doing anything. And finally, he takes this, this ball and starts to, like, jerk this ball up in the air to get this dog to play with the ball. So the dog starts to jump. And then he immediately wastes no time, goes to the other side of the car and makes the dog jump again on the other side. And it was clear that he, at this point, wanted to get on videotape from his car, the dog jumping around my car. So he comes back, he's like, well, my dog reacted to, to your car. Like, this is escalating. This is getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm um, like, I, you know, how did a seatbelt turn into all of a sudden you're searching my car you're faking it with this ball now I'm getting thrown into the back of your car what's going on here it got really scary at that point I felt like completely no power to do anything 
and he started to search through my car and just tear my car apart, just like ripping things, you know. Finally, he started to take apart all of my music stuff and found my cash, got extremely excited, got like hyperventilating excited and came back and was like, well, I found this cash and blah, blah, blah. And like, whose is it? At this point, he had asked me like a bunch of times, are there any illegal substances in your car? And he like went through a list of like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, cash, weapons, blah, 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 multiple times. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, is it illegal to have cash in my car? It implied to me that it was illegal to carry cash. He grouped it right in with the drugs and weapons. The rule of implication over the rule of law, the actual law. It made it seem like this could have been illegal. I didn't really know. And really all I started thinking about was my daughter and being able to see her when I get done with this tour. And she means the world to me, you know, and like any time without her, I was like, oh my God, am I going to be thrown in jail for carrying cash? And I just wanted to get back to her at this point. So I said, well, the speakers aren't mine. And I lied. Then all these other policemen showed up, I think about three or four cars worth. And they were like high-fiving and stuff about the money and laughing and joking. I honestly felt like I was in a dream. And I like more than once pinched myself. I was like, God, if this is a dream, like, please wake up. Like, what is going on? And here I'm watching like my life savings being taken, you know, stuff that I've worked so hard for. So anyways, the cops are like done with the search and they didn't find anything. And it was so funny. They were like trying to take the spare tire off the spare and like jumping up and down on it. And, you know, like they had ripped everything apart. They thought so for sure they were going to find something in my car. So they didn't. And finally, this uh, detective came up, this plainclothes detective, and he says, well, if you'd like to go, you know, you can sign this waiver, waiving your rights to this whatever we found, and then you can just go. The waiver said that the money would be given as a gift to the state of Wyoming, and specifically to their division fighting drugs. First, who gives money to the government? And second, why the drug division, their stop of Phil, had nothing to do with drugs. He didn't have a single drug on him. And he just made it sound like really simple. And I was like, well, so what if I don't sign the waiver? And he didn't make that sound so simple. He wouldn't really tell me. And I kept asking him over and over, maybe five, six times. What happens if I don't sign it? And uh, he wouldn't say. He, he had to say something, right? I mean, at first he wouldn't. He just kind of like, well, it'll be bad. It'll be bad. You know, and I was like, well, what exactly will happen if I don't sign it? You know, he's like, well, he kept trying to avoid it. And then finally he's like, well, you know, we're going to go through your phone. We're going to go through everything, even more in your car. You're going to be here for a long time probably going to spend some time in jail. He wouldn't tell me, like, why am I going to be here for long? I was like, well, why would I be here for a long time? You've already gone through my car. What would happen? He's like, well, we got to go back to the court. We're going to have to get a some kind of other thing to make sure we could, we could search even deeper or whatever. I, it was really unclear, and he made it sound bad. It's hard to in that situation. I was really scared. I was nervous. I had to go to the bathroom really bad for probably over four hours at that point. And that's bad, you know? It's just... It, I was not in a good state. 
I was tired from not much sleep the morning before. And just from driving for two days, you get kind of, it's hard to focus. And a couple times, I was like, so, if I sign this, I can just go. And he's like, yeah. And honestly, I just, all I thought about was her. If I'm thrown in jail for a month, you know, and people are, are talking and saying bad things about me, like, it's going to affect her. And I was like, okay, I guess it's worth it, you know, if I can just go. The 92 grand, I'll just let go and make a fight for it in the future. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Phil Parhamovich's story. A musician, cash in his speaker, seized by the cops, signs away his right to the money unwillingly, under duress. You'll find out the rest of the story after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of musician Phil Parhamovich's story of the police pressuring him to gift his money to them, despite not charging him with a crime. The last few years, you may have heard of a controversial police practice called civil asset forfeiture. Like most things in life, it started out with good intentions, allowing police to seize the assets of, say, drug kingpins, whom they suspect are using those assets to commit crimes. But today, it's gotten so out of hand that a grandma in Illinois had her car taken from her because her grandson borrowed it, was dealing drugs in it, and she didn't have a clue. When she went to the police with her true story, it was too late. They had already sold her car and profited from the sale before her grandson even appeared before a judge and justice was served. Grandma couldn't get to work and injustice was served to her. In over a single decade, the Drug Enforcement Agency has seized over $3.2 billion in private property from individuals that they never even charged with a crime. Think about that. You can have your property taken from you without ever being charged with anything. There now is a movement afoot to ban civil asset forfeiture and, at a minimum, have it so that you have to be charged with a crime before your property can be seized. And yet, these government officials can be sneaky and creative creatures to get around this whole ugly debate. They've resorted to taking a whole other path, a side road, to the same goal. They're trying to stop civil forfeiture. The governor keeps vetoing certain things and they allowing to have this waiver where they could kind of get around it by saying... Okay, well, you weren't convicted of anything, but now you're agreeing to gift the state of Wyoming whatever it is we're seizing. It's just manipulation, you know, it's just, it's thievery. Whether you're doing with the fine print or whatever, it's the same thing. I didn't go to any of the shows. <laughs> I was, I just lost my life's savings. I was completely despondent, you know, I was just beside myself. I drove away in a state of like not knowing what had just had happened. I spent the next two hours probably just collecting myself, honestly, 
trying to like figure out what do I do here. And so I stopped at a McDonald's, got on the Wi-Fi with my laptop and just started to research. I didn't even know what civil forfeiture was at this point, you know. Now I learned about it. I started to look for attorneys right off the bat. And so I found the Institute for Justice and Dan Albin. His name had come up in a few of the, the cases. And it was already late at night, so I couldn't call at that point. First thing in the morning, I called up. I asked to speak to him. He answered the phone. And I told him what had happened. And he says, okay, that's very interesting. We want to help you if we can. And from that point on, they didn't formally represent me but they helped me every step of the way. And they had to vet me. They really had to look deeply into who I was and was my story true. And they came out here and checked everything out. They went through my phone, they went through my wallet, they went through everything. It was very intense. Right away we started to send letters to the state of Wyoming, requesting the money back, claiming that it was mine. And the state of Wyoming just kind of dragged their feet. They weren't going to do anything. They weren't going to give anything back. And yet, Phil didn't have the luxury of dragging his feet with his pending purchase of smart studios and a home. I contacted the person who I made the contract with because we were set to close and all that. Everything was going to go forward. And I, and I told him what happened. And he said, OK, well, why don't I give you a nine-month lease? We'll see where your court case is at the end of the, the nine months. And that's happening right now. We're at that kind of end point. We got some dates that we have to get my bank financing papers to him and stuff. But uh, so that was that was very cool of him. And they basically said to look, if, I mean, obviously we like the guy. We're trying to help him out here. But ultimately, if you can't put this money together, we will, you know, sell it to someone else. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the reality of of real estate he's got property he needs to sell and i mean one of the unfortunate things is because of this i don't think a lot of people knew this place was for sale and now that this is all starting to come out a lot of people do and they're contacting me they're like hey i wanted to buy a place hey i wanted to buy buy that place so we'll see what happens here um i could lose it i could very easily it's to me it's hanging in the balance it's 50 50 But Phil did have one arrow in his quiver that the state of Wyoming didn't know about. They had no idea that I had representation at that time. They thought that he was just some poor Yahoo out there that they could take advantage of. And this wasn't just any old representation. The Institute for Justice has 44 attorneys who work full-time fighting for the liberties of Americans who don't have the resources to fight for themselves when they're unjustly targeted by their government. These guys have litigated five cases before the Supreme Court and won four of them. Wyoming's government didn't know this when they violated the rule of law again. They had had a hearing uh, in July without letting me know about it. And we had already corresponded about eight times back and forth. You know, they knew everything. They had my addresses, they had my phone number, they had my emails, they had everything. And there was no attempt to contact me. So they had this hearing without me, decided since I didn't show up to forfeit my money, and I, I would have been there for sure. And so the case was supposedly closed. 
this hearing that we asked for was just to reopen it, saying that, hey, we had been in good contact, uh, you should have been able to notify me, so you need to reopen this case. And we got out there, and it turned out that the judge was on a leave of absence. His wife was ill. So there was a retired judge, military judge, an older guy, 70-some years old, I think. And he showed up there, and in the morning of the court hearing, all of a sudden, one of the senators of Wyoming was trying to call me, one of the House of Representatives was trying to call me. And this sudden rush of interest wasn't accidental. The Institute for Justice worked with the publication Vox to have a long expose on this saga come out the very morning of the hearing. The article had dropped. It was like, boom, oh my God. There was reporters there and everything. And right before that hearing, because of this article and all this stuff blowing up, I believe, the judge pulled everyone to the side and said, hey, let's, let's just get this done. Let's not even worry about why the hearing didn't happen in the first place and not, you know, let's just get this done. We, we want no part of this now. And I think the attorney general in Wyoming, I believe he wanted it to just go away. It then took about three weeks for Phil's life savings to arrive back to him just before he and I met and hopefully in time to be able to make Smart Studios his permanent home. Hopefully he still is patient, you know, because I just got the check a few days ago. The bank is going to take a little bit to look at things. And, you know, I've had expenses in this last point of time, too, which I have to have to pay off now. So it's it'll be close. Phil's been busy in what's for now his studio working away on his other dream. I've been really into electronic music. I started going to Burning Man, I think, seven years ago and really getting into some artists out there. At first, I didn't like it at all. It was kind of like, what is this? You know, I've been this guitar, old school, like old blues, like the oldest Ross blues, fife and drum tradition, which is like the start of blues, really. And I think after like hearing my John Lee Hooker albums 20,000 times and Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath, I just, you get tired of that, you know? And I really started to get into electronic music. And four years ago, I started producing it on my own, but I wasn't up to the state I wanted it at yet. And finally, this past year, I started to produce stuff that I felt like was on par with what I was hearing and where I felt like, okay, now I have a voice. A voice known as Star Monster. A different voice, but the same voice that is grateful to the Institute for Justice and especially their donors who could be spending their money on fine meals and yachts and instead to freely give of themselves to help hundreds of people like Phil that they've never met. It's just astounded me. It it really has. All the people from the Institute for Justice, the people that wrote me on Facebook, to show their support and started a GoFundMe for me. Like people are offering like, hey, I'll buy it and you could pay me back. Or like, just, it really restored my faith in humanity. When things like what had happened to me happen, it, it really makes you question the world you live in and just, God, you know, what, what am I living in? And, and it just makes you feel horrible. But I can't believe how many loving, supportive people there are out there. It, it really blows me away. And great job on that, as always, Alex. 
And what a story. And what a story about the rule of law. And by the way, we always say we support the vast majority of our law enforcement officials who do a fine and an honorable job. But we've always got to watch out for government power, folks. Always. That's what the Constitution was about. And look what happens in a situation like this. The leverage that law enforcement has and the way a rule can be used to raise revenue. And this is when we always worry, folks, when the law enforcement acts like a revenue agent. They're not. It should be about right and wrong and protecting the country. And what a job that the Institute for Justice does each and every day out there defending an essential right in this country, our property rights. Phil Parhamovich's story, our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're about to hear a great sports story, folks, about a man who used his athletic abilities to shake things up during a period of worldwide turmoil. Today, Lorena from Hillsdale College brings us the story of a man whose name many of you may know, but whose story, maybe not so much. Imagine you're so poor. Their mom must gouge a tumor out of your chest with a knife because she can't afford health care. You're so shy that you're known by a mispronounced version of your name. You're so submissive that you compete against animals for entertainment in order to pay for college. And yet you shattered Hitler's idea that the Aryan race is supreme in less than 11 seconds. Meet Jesse Owens the fastest man in the world during the 1936 Olympic Games. It was a great thrill to me to be standing atop the victory stand on the day and watching your flag rise above all others and listen to the strains of your own national anthem and being some 3,000 odd miles away from home and realizing that dream of being able to compete and meeting friends and meeting people that has been an everlasting friendship to me. First entered uh, grade school in Cleveland, Ohio. I first time in my life had ever been to a mixed school, and and uh, when I came from Alabama, being rather shy, and the lady asked me my name, and I told her J.C. and real fast, and she says, uh, Jesse. I said, No, ma'am. She says, I said, J.C. She says, Well, your name is Jesse Owens, isn't it? <laughs> I says, Yes, ma'am. It's been Jesse Owens ever since. A shy, submissive black boy. There was one thing that distinguished Jesse from other boys his age. Here's Chris Calderon from the Jesse Owens Museum to fill us in. Jesse always said that he loved to run. From early childhood when he would run around the cotton fields of rural northern Alabama to when his family moved to Cleveland, to the Rust Belt, as they say, for a better life. And he began running in what they then called junior high. Now it's middle school, but junior high and then high school, and was um, mentored by his first coach, Charles Riley. He always loved to run. He said it made him feel free. And keep in mind that Jesse was only two generations away from slavery. His grandfather had been a slave. Running gave him the freedom that real life certainly didn't. And 
Of course, once he started competing and breaking records, he felt good about that, although his primary competitor was always himself. He always wanted to be himself, be his own record. Born in Cleveland, Alabama, Jesse grew up as a typical black boy during the 1920s, enduring the usual obstacles they faced and more. Despite being the fastest man in the world, his poverty-stricken state not only plagued him with hardships through grade school, but made it literally backbreaking to get the resources he needed leading up to the Olympics. Many of the promises that had been made to him and the offers that had been made to him by rich white businessmen in the United States right after the Olympics and the euphoria of Jesse's fame and popularity, they never materialized. In fact, when Jesse was honored in a ticker tape parade in New York after he got back, he actually had to use the service entrance, the freight entrance, to get into the hotel where they were having his reception. Um, He did race against horses. He actually raced in show-off competitions prior to Major League Baseball games, and he had some business ventures that he tried by himself. He was the first to admit that he was not a businessman, and his business ventures failed. He had to do some menial things following the Olympics. His childhood in Alabama, rural northern Alabama, where the museum is, was beyond hard scrabble, little three-room cottage for 10 people. He was a very sickly child because of the cold Alabama winters and the fact that they could not keep this little sharecropper's cottage warm. He had had pneumonia several times by the time he was five years old. The nearest doctor was 75 miles away in Birmingham. The family had no money, no transportation. His parents nursed him. He survived, but then when he was five, he developed a fibrous tumor on his chest that started growing both inward and outward and preventing him from breathing well. His father convinced his mother to save his life by cutting it out. She was reluctant to do so because it was so close to his heart, but she ultimately knew it was Jesse's only chance to survive. She heated a kitchen knife on the kitchen stove. His dad put a leather belt between his teeth and she cut out this fibrous tumor. They didn't know how to suture, so Jesse bled for three days. He was literally bleeding out. He felt himself getting weaker and weaker. He heard his father praying on the porch of their little cottage. He dragged himself out there, and his father told him to pray, and they prayed together. And Jesse attributes the fact that his bleeding stopped at that time to the direct intervention of God answering their prayers. And the silver lining in this cloud, if you can find one, is that From then on, Jesse always said that he never really feared pain because he had endured the worst pain ever. Never feared pain because he endured the worst pain ever. And that's quite a claim. And yes, Jesse will encounter plenty of painful experiences in the future, and we'll find out how he handles them when we get back. Jesse Owens' story here on Our American Stories, and to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories every week, and they'll be both an audio form or a transcript form. You can listen, you can read. Go to ouramericannetwork.org right now and sign up for our free newsletter. 
And tell friends about the show. Get them to sign up, too. Send the link. If you love what you hear, well, then share it with the people you love. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back to the story of Jesse Owens, who just survived a major chest surgery performed by his parents, who were too poor to afford a doctor. Back to Lorena and how this affected his long-term career. After an extremely rough childhood, Jesse resolved to never fear pain because he endured the worst pain ever. With this attitude, Jesse was able to rise beyond the national level only to face one of the biggest decisions of his lifetime. Whether to compete in an Olympic Games run by the racist Nazi regime, or to boycott and let all his talent, love, and hard work go to waste. Back to Chris Calderon with Jesse's decision. Hitler had already bragged that the white athletes, the Aryans, were... Superman, and that all people of color, as well as Catholics, Gypsies, anyone who was not of Northern European genetic descent were subhumans. And again, although there wasn't wide knowledge of what Hitler's plans were, there were rumblings of Hitler's plans to rule the world militarily, to actually stamp out all the subhuman, as Hitler put it, races. There was an outcry from the NAACP and also from many of the trade unions saying, boycott the Olympics, boycott the Olympics. Do not feed into what Hitler is doing. At one press conference, Jesse was asked if he felt that they should boycott the Olympics. And Jesse said, yes, he thought they should because of Hitler's treatment of all the minority groups, etc., and his vision of, of ruling the world militarily. However, Jesse changed his mind because his coach, Larry Snyder, convinced Jesse that sports and politics were separate and that Jesse would not be proving anything by boycotting Hitler's Olympics. But with his decision to compete, Jesse would prove something. When Hitler ensured that his top athletes were being entered into competition to confirm that the Aryan race was supreme, The results were surprising. Surprising. In the most endearing, disgusting, loving, and horrendous way possible. One of the 
German athletes, his name was Lutz Long, befriended Jesse. They had met each other in the Olympic Village. And when both of them were in the qualifying meets for the long jump, the broad jump, it's known by both titles, broad jump and long jump, Jesse kept fouling. He kept starting his jump too late. In other words, going past the starting point, and he wasn't even going to qualify for the finals. And Lutz Long, who was a competitor, actually went up to Jesse and told him in his broken English, listen, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is how you fix it. And he helped Jesse, with his little hints, qualify. Now, the end result of that was that Jesse took first place and beat Lutz Long, but they remained good friends until Lutz Long was killed, uh, fighting for the German army reluctantly in the invasion of Sicily. Jesse went back in 1951 to Berlin and met Lutz Long's son, Kai, and told him how wonderful a friend his father had been. That also enraged Hitler, and I have read and heard that one of the reasons that Lutz Long was sent in on the first wave of the German invasion of Sicily was because Hitler had been so infuriated by the fact that Lutz Long was photographed And again, these were iconic pictures that were published all over the world, laying on the grass of the Olympic Stadium with Jesse, and they clearly were good friends. So yes, there was tension. The greatest picture, it's the the most wonderful picture. We have a huge mural of it. It's almost tear-jerking. It's such a neat picture. And the Olympic Games is the only platform that we have in this world where you can bring young people, and like the 1972, 117 nations of the world, with 12,000 young people that came together and broke bread together, sang together and danced together, and competed upon the field of competition. Friendships that were born in those Olympic Games are everlasting friendships. And this is the tradition of the Olympic Games, where people in various parts of the world will come together. And youngsters of this country and youngsters of other countries have dreams about being members of the Olympic team and to be able to find and to meet new friends. I think that when we begin to talk, we amplify the political situation to the point of where we believe that this is not true. And the only thing I can say to people like that is that they must go to an Olympic Games. They must go to the Olympic Village. They must sit in the Olympic Stadium and watch it, not by television, but see with their own eyes and be caught up in the emotion and the electricity of what it means to sit with peoples from all over the world and different customs and different ways of life. But it all boils down, David, to the fact that here we are together and here we are watching an athletic contest and on that day, may the best man win. Despite Nazi Germany's resolve to exterminate all subhuman races, the athletes themselves acted like brothers in the Olympic Village. Back to Chris from the Jesse Owens Museum. After the myth of Aryan supremacy was was blown out of the water by Jesse Owens and his prowess. Hitler was clearly furious, as were his Hitler's henchmen, um, who were standing next to him. Um, they were extremely upset and angry that the 1936 Olympics, which they had bragged to uh, reporters and and writers and radio. Uh, sportscasters all over the world would prove that the Nazi myth of Aryan supremacy um, was in fact a fact. And of course that got completely 
disabused and and just blown out of the water by not just Jesse Owens, but um, Jesse especially, but some of the other black athletes who did so well. The German crowd in the Olympic Stadium, they loved Jesse, and they cheered him on, and that also did not make Hitler happy. While it was ironically a German athlete who's responsible for Jesse's victory in the long jump, it was those backbreaking struggles from Jesse's childhood that helped him win the 100-meter dash. He actually broke the, the records at the Ann Arbor uh, College meet a year before the Olympics with a badly wrenched back, and his coach didn't even want him to compete because he was in such pain. But Jesse competed, and he broke four records. So that early, traumatic, painful incredible experience with the, the kitchen, homegrown kitchen surgery, um, inured him to pain. He, he didn't fear pain again, according to his own statement. As Jesse puts it. I had a terribly, terribly sore back, and I had heard it uh, several, oh, two weeks prior to the opening, three weeks prior to the opening of the Big Ten Conference at Ann Arbor. And on that day, I could not run a quarter mile to warm up, which was customary, and then do your calisthenics and loosen up for the event that was to come. So we had it, and uh, it's a funny thing. I can remember the coach thinking in terms of scratching me for this race, and uh, I asked him, I said, well, if I'm going to lose it, coach, let me lose it running. And psychologically, I don't know what happened. I got out on the mark, and I had to have my teammates help me get the sweatsuit off. And the man gave the command of on your marks that went down and the success, the command set. The gun went off. I had no aches. And I started to run. And I ran the 109-4. And ten minutes later, I took one jump in the broad jump and jumped 26 feet, eight and a quarter inches. And some 15 minutes later, we had the 220-yard dash. And I ran the 220 and and 20 and two-tenths seconds, and then uh, 20 minutes later, we ran the 220 low hurdles in 22.6. And um, when it was all over, uh, I couldn't get upstairs. They had to carry me upstairs to the dressing room to take a shower and to go home. And I went, I went, I was living in Cleveland then, and there was a newspaper man there from Cleveland, Ohio, which was a very good friend of mine. And I went back to Cleveland with him. And as we went back, I got in the back seat of the car and I laid down. And, uh, and there I couldn't move until I got to my home in Cleveland, Ohio. So that was the day, day that I will remember. And psychologically, if you ask me, I couldn't tell you what happened on that day. And by the way, it's so good to hear Jesse Owens himself talk about these things. We love to do that here on this show. The coach had thought of scratching him from the race. And Jesse Owen said, if I'm going to lose, coach, let me lose running. And when we come back, the story of Jesse Owens, a great athletic story, a great human story, a classic American story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with the final installment of this remarkable story of Jesse Owens. When we left off, he'd won four gold medals despite his injuries, blowing all of the Germans out of the water. Let's hear about Jesse's reaction to Hitler and Hitler's reaction to Jesse. While Jesse was breaking multiple records with an injured back, he wasn't concerned with Hitler lurking in the audience, who would later refuse to acknowledge his achievements and cause major havoc in Europe. Well, the world situation was going to change immediately after the games were over. Uh, Two and a half years later, Hitler invaded Poland and the whole complex of the world changed. Uh, We saw the... We weren't too much aware of the war clouds that were going because I don't think that youngsters in those days were as politically orientated as youngsters are today simply because we did not have the television, we didn't have the modern newspapers, the modern magazines as we have today. Something happens in Europe today or happens in this country, the Europeans know about it that evening or we know what's happening in Europe, you know, the same day or maybe even before the day is over because of our modern means of communication. And uh, uh, I saw Hitler during the time. I wasn't concerned with Hitler. I, I, first place, uh, I didn't know too much about him, and I became aware of it when we arrived with the brown shirts that were standing shoulder to shoulder holding back the tremendous crowds. And then I saw this, uh, the Nazi flag flying everywhere. And, uh, but it didn't bother me because I didn't go over there to run against Hitler. We had 54 other nations of the world, and they had their best boy uh, in the events in which I had been entered, and I was to compete against them. So my concentration was upon those that we were competing against. Now, when the Olympic Games were over and we began to travel in post-Olympic Games uh, meets uh, throughout Germany, the German people were tremendous. We had tremendous uh, ovations everywhere we went. And, uh, and of course, uh, when we got back home, you began to look at it, and it became a little disturbing. And then two and a half year, years later, your fears were uh, confirmed because of this man's lust for power to control and, and to, you know, rule the world. Here's Chris Calderon to explain Hitler's reaction. Prior to Jesse's win, another African-American athlete had, had won. That infuriated Hitler, and he did not want to shake hands with anyone he considered subhuman, of course. So the um, Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, basically told Hitler, you have to shake hands with every winner or no winner. So Hitler opted to shake hands with no one. So he left the stadium prior to shaking hands with Jesse. One of the things that Jesse used to say in his speeches when asked, did Hitler refuse to shake hands with you, Jesse Jesse was very diplomatic, and he said, Hitler did not shake hands with me, you're right, but neither did President Roosevelt, which is true. So he was trying to say, yeah, I was snubbed in Berlin by Hitler, but I was also snubbed in my own country by President Roosevelt. He was snubbed by Hitler, but also by Roosevelt. Although Jesse was humble and submissive, he acknowledged when he was being disrespected. But he would never disrespect others. The two Jewish members of the relay team, at the last minute, were told they couldn't run. And they were replaced by Jesse and another African-American athlete. 
that was done to placate Hitler because Hitler was already so furious that Jesse and the other African-American athletes had done so well. Jesse did not want to take the place of his Jewish teammate. He only did so after he was told that the United States would pull the relay team rather than let the Jewish athletes run. And I think it's a testament to Jesse's personality and his caring for others that he remained friends with the Jewish athletes who he had replaced for the rest of his life. One of the Jewish athletes became a very well-known sportscaster in New York, and he and Jesse remained friends until the end. Jesse was a very loyal friend. I think that's really important. He was friends with Joe Lewis, the boxer, for a lifetime, even though Joe Lewis descended into mental illness and drug use. Jesse never turned his back on him. Um, Jesse's competitors were his friends for life, and that's the kind of man Jesse Owens was. But when looking back at it all, what kind of man was Jesse? He had a, a wife that he had loved since junior high and three daughters. And he always said that those were his real four gold medals. His wife and his three daughters were his, the best gold medals he could ever hope for. Jesse Owens, man who grew up poor and undervalued, who resolved never to fear pain after a nearly fatal chest surgery, then won the Olympics with an injured back in the face of a regime which hated his kind reflects on his experiences. Well, life has been very good to me. God has been good to me. I don't think you should ask too much of God. I think that when he has given to you a certain amount of life in which you've lived that has been fulfillment for you, let's don't continue to ask for too much. If I receive nothing else in life today, I felt that what he has done and the people that I've met and the things that have transpired within my life, I have one of fulfillment. And what a story and what a pleasure to hear from Jesse Owens himself. Again, whenever we get a chance, we like to bring the stories from the people themselves, from the principals themselves. And very often, we can get into those files and find the good stuff, the old stuff, and bring it to life from the person himself, from Jesse Owens himself. Great job on that, Lorena and Thank you for the, the kindness and generosity of Hillsdale College to loan every summer. You're best and brightest, and they prove it every time with stories like this. Young people interested in our nation's history, too, surprising themselves, I think, surprising us, and in the end, delivering just great content. And by the way, special thanks also to Chris Calderon from the Jesse Owens Museum for telling his story. And special thanks to Chris Calderon from the Jesse Owens Museum for telling Jesse's story. If you'd like to learn more about Jesse and his life, don't forget to check out the Jesse Owens Museum located in his own birthplace, Danville, Alabama, or go to the website jesseowensmuseum.org. Again, that's jesseowensmuseum.org. And by the way, through the years, we're going to be visiting so many of these museums. We visited the Helen Keller Museum and what a delight that was. And there are people who house these museums, who keep those stories alive, and we deeply are grateful for that, and we're going to be bringing these voices to you from all around the country. 
uh, preserving this heritage of ours, this this story, this American story. And I, I just was struck at the end there by Jesse Owens' voice and the peace in it and the gratitude in it. Life has been good to me, he said. God has been good to me. And my goodness, I think that's why there was that peace in the end. We learned that with the Branch Ricky and Jackie Robinson story, the role of those men's faith. I mean, imagine Hitler didn't shake Jesse Owens' hand, but neither did our own president. And imagine enduring that kind of indignity as an athlete and still being able to say, life has been good to me and God has been good to me. Jesse Owens' story, his four gold medals, of course, the four he's most proud of, his wife and his three daughters. Jesse Owens' story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell a lot of stories about courage here on the show. And this next one, well, it was sent to us by one of the smartest and best people I know in Chicago, Noel Moore. One of those guys who should have his own radio show, but he's too busy working for a living and taking care of his family and his hometown. And we are going to produce this one up for him and do it the justice it deserves. And here is Hillsdale intern Monty Montgomery with the story of Jason Seaman, an ordinary man who did something truly extraordinary. It happened on a Friday, like any other. It's a 924 right now. I want to make you aware of some uh, breaking and developing news that we are working on here in the uh, 24-hour News 8 newsroom. Stand by, active shooter, Noblesville Schools, active shooter, Noblesville Schools, stand by for further. Noblesville West, Noblesville West. Word of a shooting situation at Noblesville West Middle School. Noblesville West Middle School, if you know it, it's east of Morse Reservoir, uh, north of the Fox Prairie Golf area. Very limited information right now. We're going to learn a lot more in the minutes to come, but we do want to let you know what we know so far. All units. No 100, Noblesville Dispatch, active shooter, Noblesville West Middle School, 19,900, 8 Road. 
We do begin with breaking news for our viewers in the West. We want to show you these pictures, aerial shot of a middle school in Noblesville, Indiana. What has become a familiar scene, students appear to be evacuating, running from their own school after reports that there has been a shooter there at Noblesville West Middle School. We don't have any word yet on injuries. Don't know how many people may have been hurt, but we do know, according to the fire department that has responded, that a shooter, uh, suspected shooter, is in custody. Battalion 307, I'm being reported that the, the shooter has been contained. Do you want everybody to stage or go in? We only have two patients. Two patients. One critical. One really very stable. Okay. One critical, one stable. Two people are now recovering from gunshot wounds in Indiana after deputies say a middle school student started firing two handguns in the middle of class. Yeah, there's a teacher that's being called the hero this morning for his quick response during the survey. I think what what is so really impressive here is that this is a school shooting where we're talking about no fatalities. And a big reason for that is this teacher. Meantime, police and school officials say those emergency preparations they made here paid off today. Noblesville is grateful tonight, grateful for one teacher. But who was that teacher? Well, according to those who know him, a man of extraordinary talents athletically, but one of the most humble and hardworking team players in the field and in the classroom. Raised in a family of hardworking, faithful, and community-minded parents, that teacher's seventh grade science teacher at Noblesville West Middle School, Jason Seaman. An ordinary man who did something extraordinary to save the lives of his students in his classroom. It was nine o'clock at Noblesville West Middle School. And in Jason Seaman's class, students had just started to take a science test. Nothing suggested anything out of the ordinary would soon happen, even when a student got up and requested permission to go use the restroom. That student that Jason Seaman had let out of class came back with two loaded handguns. The unthinkable was happening at Noblesville. It was like halfway through class. He pulled the gun out of his pocket and everyone just started screaming and trying to like, get behind stuff like the desks and tables. Jody Don is a former SWAT team member who responded to two active shootings in Colorado. If you see a gun like this open, what does that mean? He's teaching them how to recognize when the shooter is reloading his gun and teaching them defense tactics. Oh, there you go. Good, good. How and when to pounce. Run, hide, fight. These three tactics are commonly recommended to teachers by safety experts, such as the one you just heard, as the best way of surviving an active shooter situation. But for Jason Seaman, a former defensive end at Southern Illinois University, running away wasn't an option. 
A two-sport all-area performer in both basketball and football during high school, Jason Seaman was named News Gazette Athlete of the Year his senior year in 2007. Seaman had been trained to take on the hardest opponents on both the field and the court, but now he would have to do so in his own classroom. The stakes were much higher than a scoreboard. It was life or death, and losing was not an option. So Jason Seaman did what he needed to do. That's when, according to 13-year-old Ethan Stonebreaker, his teacher threw a basketball at the gunman to distract him, then running towards the bullet. We saw one girl fall to the ground, and our science teacher immediately ran at him, wadded the gun out of his hand, and tackled him to the ground. If it weren't for him, more of us would have been injured for sure. He did something that most people wouldn't dare to do, but it's very good that he did. Very good indeed. Jason Seaman, in an act of tremendous courage, managed to disarm and subdue the gunman using only his bare hands, taking three bullets in the process to the hip, abdomen, and forearm. But Jason's heroics did not stop there. As Jason Seaman laid on the ground with critically injured student Ella Whistler, continued to hold the gunman, yelling to his frightened students to call 911 and attempting to keep Ella calm in the situation. After a harrowing couple of minutes, the police and paramedics finally arrived and Jason was taken to the hospital for surgery. held a fundraiser at this baseball game for Siemens medical costs along with 13-year-old Ella Whistler, also shot that day and critically injured. She remains in the hospital, though the school says she is improving. Jason Seaman was immediately hailed as a hero after the shooting. But what kind of man would run into a hail of bullets to save the lives of others? A man, according to his brother, that is familiar with struggle and adversity on the field. A father a great teammate and a hard worker who fought to get back on the field after tearing his ACL and having to endure multiple surgeries. Jason Seaman was just an everyday American from flyover country who stepped up to the situation at hand without thinking twice about it. And the ever-humble man himself, Jason Seaman continues to avoid the spotlight, so much so that we didn't even get a response from him or his family to interview. But that's just the kind of person Jason Seaman is. But I'll let Jason's words speak for themselves. Here's Seaman at his only press conference. First off, uh, as a person who isn't looking for attention, uh, nor entirely comfortable with the situation I'm currently in, uh, I want to make it clear that uh, my actions on that day, uh, in my mind, were the only acceptable actions I could have done given the circumstances. I deeply care for my students and their well-being. Um, so that is why I did what I did that day. I can't say enough how proud of Ella I am and how we all should be. Her courage and strength at such a young age is nothing short of remarkable, and we should all uh, continue to keep her uh, in our minds as she continues to recover. The community poured their support out for Seaman as well. Listen to some of these remarks made by citizens of Noblesville and Americans at large. Because of this quick response today, 
that we think lives were saved. I can't believe um, what he did. Um, I can't wait to get the opportunity to shake his hand. At some point soon, uh, I want to shake that man's hand. He's an absolute hero. Um, he is actually the reason that uh, my daughter is actually here today. It wouldn't surprise me that Jason would step up to be the guy to do that. In the face of something like this, uh, you just hope that there's more teachers and, and uh, it doesn't even need to be a teacher, just more human beings like himself who, who are willing to put themselves on the line to, to help out the kids, you know, the future of America. And great job on that, Monty. And my goodness, a guy who didn't want the spotlight, the opposite of the Kardashians. They do nothing. They seek attention. He does something extraordinary. Doesn't want the cameras on him. That is the American character right there, by the way, folks. Ordinary folks doing extraordinary things. And by the way, Aristotle, at least the quote is attributed to him, said, courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all others. And thanks to Monty, our Hillsdale intern, where they actually teach Aristotle and Shakespeare and the Constitution. What a crazy idea. And they push their kids hard at Hillsdale to learn and to grow. Hillsdale College, thank you for sharing your best and brightest with us. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Have the family watch them. You can't get a better education anywhere. Jason Seaman's story. An American story here on Our American Stories.